You're listening to Shifting Schools, episode 237. Welcome back to the Shifting Schools podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. I'm here on my own today. You will get to hear from Jeff again next week. This episode is a conversation with Professor Sarah Lambden. Professor Sarah Lambden has a book that is coming out. It is entitled Data Cartels, The Companies That Control and Monopolize Our Information. Sarah Lambden is a professor at CUNY School of Law. She also has a master's degree in library science and legal information management and a law certificate in environmental law. Her research focuses on information law and policy. When she's not teaching, she works on data justice projects across the spectrum from open government to personal privacy. She researches and writes about information access, surveillance, and privacy and informational capitalism. She's written a book about data analytics. That's what we are here to discuss. It is out from Stanford University Press. So three things that I think you should be looking out for or listening out for on this episode are the following. One, do our students know what data justice is. We often have student advocacy groups who might be thinking about different issues. Have they been introduced to the notion of data justice, data access? Two, research skills. Are we having conversations about how we can use research really as a tool to build awareness. The book from Professor Lambden has, again, taught me so many different things, and it's incredible to learn about this book really being the project that took her five years in the making. So in what way are we framing research as an agent for change? And then three, in what ways are we merging information literacy and data literacy. So in what ways are we reminding our students to think critically about what might be happening with their data and where we can go to learn more about that? So again, the the big shift for me in this conversation with Professor Lambden was really just thinking again about how heroic it can be to really immerse yourself in a long-term project around research. So the picture that we are painting about who a researcher is and what they do and how, again, that can really instigate change, how are we having that conversation with our students? In what ways are we pointing our students to incredible research mentors like Professor Lambden who are out there doing that work and hoping to make society a little bit of a better, more informed place. Thank you, Tricia. Before we get to today's episode, just a few words from today's show sponsors. First up, Educational Concierge is a weekly educational podcast aimed at equipping confident and innovative educators with the tools and resources to meet the demands of the 21st century. They coordinate all aspects of and for education nationally and internationally eliminating all roadblocks and layers. They have conversations about education. Connect with them on Instagram at the Educational Concierge Podcast or on their website in the show notes of this episode. And by Quizalize.com. Did you know you can create your own quiz or import and edit one of the standard-based tagged resources available for free? Customize your quiz to get the data and results you want. 
Sign up and try it today for free at Quizalize.com and listen for a very special offer later in the show for a way you can upgrade to their premium subscription. Enjoy today's conversation. And now, on with the show. Hi, it is a great honor for us to be talking today with Professor Sarah Lambden. We're going to focus in specifically on Professor Lambden's new book that um, I I almost got through it in a single sitting. It's really, really compelling. In the show notes, of course, we will be sure to link over to it so that folks are able to access the book, request it for professional development libraries, local libraries again. So Professor Lambden, can we start off with a bit of background on what I imagine must have been a really difficult and complicated research process for your new book, Data Cartels? Um, Our audience of educators in the realm of K-12 education are always advocating for skills that help foster better research practices. And your book is in so many ways a testament to the need to see research as a part of the engine that makes our society safer, more educated. So with all of that in mind, what can you tell us about the research that you went through for your book, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was a five-year process? Yes. (laughs) It was not an easy research. And I actually, I have um, a master's degree in library science. So my background is in librarianship. um, So I'm I'm a huge fan of research, and I really appreciate everyone for teaching research skills in K-12. It's so important. But I will admit that the research for this particular book was really difficult, Um, and and that's largely because it's, it's about these companies that don't really want to tell us about what they're doing. They don't want us to to dig too deeply into into what they're doing, even though they're companies that we use all the time. Um, I actually fell into the topic by kind of accident or coincidence. I was um, I was a librarian at a law school. I'm, I'm also a lawyer and I, I'm a law professor. So I, um, I was at my desk one day and I got, um, somehow I got an article saying that some of our biggest research companies are are vine, vying for contracts with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And I didn't understand the connection between, you know, research, like, uh, you know, legal research or Elsevier journals and our um, immigration and customs enforcement system. I was like, what could they possibly be doing? You know, are there, are there lawyers working in ICE that need research or, you know, what, what's going on? Um, And I started to look into it and it turns out that a lot of the companies that we use for research are also pivoting away from kind of being research platforms or being publishers. And they're pivoting towards data analytics, which actually involves kind of taking all the information that they already have, but then also collecting a lot of personal information about all of us and using that information to make like data surveillance Um, and and data surveillance products and also data products that kind of rank us according to how risky we are, like how they sell products to insurance companies about, you know, who who of us might commit insurance fraud um, to employers and landlords about how good an employee or tenant might be. Um, And even so in academia, I, you know, I, I talk a lot about, colleges, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a law school professor, uh, but they make, you know, 
academic metrics and academic impact numbers. I, I'm sure a lot of us, um, whether in school or in you know the programs that we're now teaching, we we are cognizant of the fact that there are these like impact statements that rank like how important your article is or what you know what kind of a scholar are you? Are you the kind of scholar who should be awarded tenure? They also create those types of metrics. Um, so. I became super, as, as a librarian, I became very, very interested in kind of the interlacing of research and then personal data products, because I think it's happening more and more in our educational products. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation around you know, being aware that our data is mined from social media, right? Like a lot of social media platforms are quote unquote free to join, but you know, you wave away a lot of, you know, the the rights around your data when you agree to their user contract. And you go into, as you were just discussing the idea of academic journals, you know, someone owns them and it's happening there as well. And I had just so naively, I think I, you know, had my hat on of like, well, the word, world of academia is often trying to do so much good. And I had never even thought about, of course, I log in anytime I'm doing that kind of research. And it had never even dawned on me that that is being tracked as well. And and you talk a little bit about, we don't know necessarily where that data goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. So for from like a K through 12 perspective, because I actually have, I have I have, I'm on the other side of children who are in K through 12 programs. And now I didn't do this before, but now when I get the list from, from their library, from their, you know, I, the, um, like, you know, people who do STEM and, um, those programs at their school and I get the list of what, uh, products they're using for research. I don't look at them the same way anymore because I am aware that all of our students have passwords and all of those passwords, um, are you know oftentimes are linked to 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 the children and I'll, I will say that for for children and educational systems there there are extra layers of privacy laws. However, they're probably I mean companies still collect something called they well they claim it's anonymized data so they'll still collect data um, but they'll they'll you know strip people's names or some or identifying information from it to collect you know statistically relevant data about, you know, what our kids are doing, what they're choosing. Um, and that data can be re-identified pretty easily. So I, I'm, I'm aware of that. I think that the idea that I did, did our personal data is anonymized is kind of an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of times schools have interest in security and also making sure our students are doing the right things. So they don't anonymize the data because they want to know if like a child is looking at an inappropriate website or children are using things that resources they shouldn't be using on their computers. So um, yeah, it just opened realizing the connection between research platforms and then also personal data products um, made me realize that all of these companies are probably benefiting from collecting data. And would you talk a little bit, I know that you've, uh, you know, the book goes into this as well, that it's sort of a balance that you have to walk. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, as, as someone who you are also working with students who need access to these research journals, how do you navigate that complexity of, you know, that, uh, you know, data is being mined, perhaps in ways that we might not want it to be, but yet we also still have research to do. 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And that's something I have to, because some people will read my research and they'll be, become very absolutist. They'll be like, no, we're never going to do research. You know, we're never using those platforms again. But the thing about information is every bit of information is unique, right? If, if one of your students is doing a report about, you know, Martin Luther King and you say, oh, you know what? We've chosen not to, to not to access this body of resources. How would you like this research about, you know, somebody completely different? How would you like this research about Franklin Delano Roosevelt instead? That's not going to fill that knowledge gap, right? Because every, every piece of information is special. If you're doing malaria research and I instead hand you research about influenza, that's not very useful, right? So I can't tell my students or any students just stop doing research on this platform or stop using this thing, right? And even in legal research, um, if you want to do legal research in the United States, you have to use either Lexis or Westlaw, right? Those are the two big legal research platforms. And it would be, I, I cannot tell my law students not to use those. It wouldn't benefit them and it wouldn't be good lawyering at this point. So instead, what I do is I encourage libraries um, and educators to try to find systems that allow them to use the platforms or the, or, or the resources without entering names or with minimizing how much information you have to put into them. Um, you know, does everybody need their own personal account? And if they do, can they just like put their initials in, you know, how, how little data, how much research can we do without totally giving up all of our personal data? And on the flip side, um, just kind of being aware when you are going online with your students or doing any sort of research with your students, be aware of the systems that you're using and what what they're connected to data-wise. Like what kind of data are they collecting and where is that data going? And I know that as educators, there's so much to do in a day. Like I don't think that we're all going to take hours out of our day to do this. But I think of it, in my, especially even in my institution, I've encouraged it as kind of a long-term project. Like, in the next five years, why don't we take some time to evaluate the services we're using and decide as a community if those are the services we feel comfortable using? I, I appreciate that because I, I think it, it is really difficult. And I think often it starts with that first step of just developing some awareness and slowing down and thinking more carefully about um, you know what, what's going on with the tools that we use. And uh, again, your, your book is really the first that I've come across that is doing that awareness generating. So I really, really appreciate that. You definitely have me thinking a lot differently about, um, you know, yes, every time I'm entering a password, um, how is my personal data perhaps being used in ways that I don't know? And so that's prompting me to ask, you know, more questions and, and dig a little bit deeper. So thank you again for that. Um, Professor Lambden, on our podcast, we've had a few episodes where we talk about data literacy and your book, of course, addresses and introduces concepts that we need, again, to think more critically about could you explain the notion of data justice? And can you speak to the urgency there is in needing to know what ba what barriers really there are currently in a place in place for data access? Yeah, so I think that data justice and information justice kind of are on two ends. I, I think of information as a spectrum. On one end, there's this issue of personal privacy, which is what we've just been talking about. Like how much of your information do you have to trade to get what you need? And that varies from person to person. Um, I often use kind of the um, the analogy or compare it to um, like those little shopping carts you get when you go to the drugstore like CVS or Walgreens. 
you know that in exchange for that that discount that you're going to get, you're 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 trading that for your data about what you're buying and your purchasing choices, right? And so some of us can afford to opt out. We're like, you know what? I don't need the 25 cent discount. I'm just going to say no. But the more you rely on those discounts and the more you're in need of the discounts, the more likely you are to be willing to trade your data, right? So that's on the privacy side of data justice. But there's a whole other side of data justice that is an access issue. And this is actually really common in an academic setting. So the more resourced an institution is, the more financial you know, um, surplus they have, the more they can afford the fanciest databases. And because these databases are taking information and making it their private commodity, right? Right, Rather than a critical public resource. And this is even like taxpayer funded information, like our laws and our science. They're taking them and they're saying, okay, we own these now. So we're going to charge $30 a pop for, for every article in our database, unless you can afford a subscription. So certain schools, well-funded schools can afford the subscriptions and they have you know, they, their libraries, their digital libraries are just full of books. Imagine a, imagine a physical book, a physical library, just like brimming with books coming out of the shelves. However, schools that can't afford these subscription fees, their shel- their digital shelves are empty and they have to make the choice. Remember, all information is unique. So if they want to get that one article about, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, they're going to have to pay $30 a pop. And so these exorbitant fees um, are much more likely to impact those who can least afford them. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying this great conversation with Dr. Sarah Lambden, and there's more great stuff to come. I just want to take a moment to give a shout out to today's show sponsors. As you heard earlier in the show, Quizalize.com is offering a special Cyber Monday sale just for Shifting School listeners. But being a podcast, everyone globally gets to benefit. Here it is. From today through December 4th, you can save 80% on a one-year subscription of Quizalize Premium. Yeah, for Shifting Schools listeners only. That is a full year of their premium subscription. Not for $72 or £60, but for $14 or £12. When you sign up for a full year of their premium subscription, you get all the teacher basic free features, plus unlimited classes, unlimited activities, full access to all games, exportable results, unlimited mastery dashboards, unlimited bubble sheet assessments. That works out to $1.17 a month for the entire year of their premium subscription. Just how good of a deal is it? Well, Quizalize is running a special right now that is $5.99 a month or 33% off their regular price. And that's right. For you Shifting School listeners, you get 80% off. If it sounds like I'm a little bit excited about this, it's because it's such a killer deal for you educators. And I'm so thankful to Quizalize.com for offering this to you. What really has me excited is that this is the perfect time of year to be trying out a product like this. You have that half day coming up or you know, the Friday before a three or five day break. Give it a go. It's free to try. Again, this offer is valid through December 4th. So if you're not sure, you can sign up for the free teacher basic account today, import one of their already made quizzes. They're in there. You just search for something you want, put it in, give it a go with your kids and have a go with your class. See what data you get. 
Try one of their live team games and see how it engages your students. Then once you see what data you get as a teacher and the engagement you get from your students, I know you're going to want to take advantage of an upgrade before December 4th for $1.17 a month. Now, to start your free account, go to quizlies.com and sign up free. It's that easy. To save 80% off a yearly subscription, all you have to do is enter shifting schools in the promo box at checkout. That's shifting schools, all one word, all caps. Got it? All one word, shifting schools, all caps. Make sure you have the S on schools and shifting schools, all caps. I can't wait to hear how you use Quizlies with your students. If you need that information again, of course, it will be in the show notes of this episode, or you can visit shiftingschools.com offers to see all our sponsors and their promotions. Thank you again to Quizlies for being a sponsor of the show, and please give them a shout out to say thank you on your social network of choice. That's Quizlies.com, engaging games for them, data for you. We also want to let you know that Nanjing International School is seeking a PYP coordinator to join their primary school leadership team in August of 2023. Nanjing International School, or NIS, is a leading nonprofit pre-K through 12th grade international IB world school. Founded in 1992, they are the oldest international school in Nanjing and the first IB curriculum school in China. NIS is proud to be the only school in Nanjing to be fully accredited by CIS and WASC and the IB. They are the largest and most diverse international school in the city. This is a fantastic opportunity to work in a dynamic, supportive, and positive school where the focus is on helping students discover their potential through inquiry. NIS is an inclusive learning community where all students are valued as individuals, The school is a very happy place where everyone lives and breathes the mission of inspiring international mindedness, personal excellence, and creative thinking. Interested applicants can learn more and apply online at www.nischina.org slash employment or the link in the show notes. If your school has openings they would like to promote on the podcast, reach out to us at info at shiftingschools.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the conversation with Trisha and Dr. Sarah Lambden. Do you get the sense, I mean, you know, it's been interesting throughout the pandemic. I was noticing, you know, again, I I really benefit from the network of educators that I'm connected with on social media. So yes, I understand I'm trading some of my data, but it's been worthwhile for me to be in those spaces. And something that I was noticing, um, you know, peak pandemic is there would be different news institutions that would have news about the pandemic, but it would be paywalled, right? And so there were a lot of folks who were saying, hey, because of the urgency of this matter, can you please consider you know, taking this out from behind your walled garden and making sure people have access to it? And I, I felt like I saw more media companies saying, you know what, our coverage of the pandemic is always going to be free, open, accessible to all. Do you get the sense that there is sort of an advocacy circle um, that's also addressing, again, as you mentioned, academic journals are very, very expensive. And the information is also really, really valuable. So do you get the sense that sort of there's a, a rising tide um, of, of an effort to to address that issue? Yeah, I think the COVID pandemic 
because because we we simultaneously needed really important scientific information urgently and because far fewer of us could access a library physically because we were all stuck in our homes we were all isolated away from a physical shelf we began to realize how big a role these electronic um, you know data sources are to our lives um, and yeah, it, it was interesting. A bunch of the big science publishers took down their paywalls for COVID. They, 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 they made these like COVID libraries, right? And then the question became, how long will these be free? Like how generous will these companies be and how long will that last? And what will happen during the next pandemic? Will they make another library with that important information? Um, and I think it did raise this awareness that we all lack access unless we are I mean, usually unless we have access to a well-funded collegiate level institution, we don't, we can't get all the science we need. Um, and I think the, it didn't spur the open access movement. The open access movement has been thriving for decades, but it did bring more attention to open access as kind of a necessity. And when I say open access, I mean open access libraries that provide, you know, free um, or affordable access to these types of informational resources. Yeah, thank you again for clarifying that. And, you know, I, I should point out when we're talking about accessibility, I also found your book, I mean, initially, when it came, I was a little bit intimidated, you know, my own learning journey around data literacy has been rocky. But I have to say, Professor Lambden, like, first of all, your book is really economic. It's not necessarily like a 500 page tomb. It's it's short and sweet. And yet I learned so much from it. And it's written in a way that's really accessible, right? I don't have expertise in this area, but I found myself able to understand the concerns, the questions. I'm wondering, uh, you know, if that was sort of an intentional choice when you were putting this together, who was sort of the ideal reader that you had in mind? Yeah, no, that's such a good question. And I really, I'm so grateful you said that because that was my goal. I didn't want to write an overly academic. I mean, there's plenty of thick, important academic work, you know, that is deeply like brainy about data privacy, data access, how, how data flows work. But I really did want this to be accessible to everyone. Actually, my, um, my 10 year old is reading it right now. And she's marking with little post-its every place she doesn't understand. Like, and, and I, I'm really excited because there's only like three red tabs so far. So even she's having being able to be, we, we talk about it a lot, but even, you know, she's being able to access it. And that was my goal. Like I want it to be a book for everyone because I want it to like one of the things you said, um, uh, you know, earlier in our conversation, Nobody knows about this problem, right? We, we are not, it's not in the forefront of our mind. And I want to familiarize it. I want us to all kind of be on the same page and understand this issue because it is one that is, it's, it's happening behind the scenes. Like we all, we see news reports about Facebook and, you know, tw uh, Twitter and Google and Amazon and, you know, all these, all these big quote unquote big tech companies. But we don't hear about these kind of data analytics and publishing companies nearly enough, um, in my opinion. And, you know, one of the issues that really stands out for me is if we're not thinking about that, as you've pointed out, this is also something that drives funding for research, right? And this is also something that um, is a part of that decision-making process of the issues that get uncovered and by whom, and that, you know, research can't just happen freely, that it does need that support. So... Um, I, I don't know if you wanted to, to touch 
touch in and, and talk a little bit more about that. But I just, uh, again, I think that's such an important question and a great one for some high school students to be thinking about, you know, what is being funded and why, and what obviously is going to need more funding and why isn't it getting that attention? Yeah. And that is, it's funny. The more I got into this, the more kind of meta mind my brain got. I was like, wait, that, that means that there's this bigger problem. And one of the biggest problems I unearthed was, well, I didn't, I didn't invent, I don't want anyone to think I invented this, but one of the biggest problems that I came upon that other people have already been thinking about is this idea that if we let these companies, these companies aren't scientists, they're not scientific peers with the people doing research, but they are making academic metrics, right? And so they are, in essence, deciding what scientific work and what scholarship and what knowledge is worthwhile and important. They're, they're selling our academic metric pro- products to grant funders, to colleges who decide tenure, to you know institutions who decide what labs to fund, These companies have a huge amount of power to decide what scientific research gets funded, what scientific research happens, and what scientific research does not get funded, and which scholars succeed and which scholars don't, which has huge implications for scientific research and all academic research that impacts all of us. And that, that, when I really was able to, like, think about that critically, it blew my mind a little because... These companies have a lot of power um, over just the knowledge enterprise. Yeah. Uh, again, it was really, really eye-opening for me as well. Uh, Professor Lambden, your book addresses how we have also come to lose access to local news. And really, I, I feel like that's almost just within my lifetime. Uh, it feels like a very, very quick decline of access to local news. And the book addresses you know, why that's a bigger problem that we need to do some more thinking about. Our audience is working with a generation who they're going to need to advocate for the news to be treated once again, as you say, as a public utility. So for our K-12 educator audience who they really do want to make sure that students can do that advocacy work, what do you think is a starting point that you might direct them to for some action? Uh, Or what are some questions that we need to be thinking more about um, in, in relation to this issue? Yeah, I think that's also, that was another MetaMind moment when I, when I thought about the implications for news access. And I mean, you can see it among, you know, college and primary age students more and more. And I'll, I'll admit, me too, all of us, we don't go to a newspaper webpage to get our news information. We go to social media first and foremost, right? And that means that our news isn't necessarily being fed from us from the best sources or the most vetted, verified sources. Um, and I, I give this example in my book, um, and I, it's, it's interesting. I saw another example yesterday that was almost identical. There was a, a there were a bunch of fires in the Midwest. There was there was a lot of wind, um, and this they they were warning people that they might have to evacuate. And it was an article. I forget which newspaper it was from some publication. And if you went to click to see if your town needed to be evacuated or if you were in an evacuation zone, you hit a paywall mm. and you can see the information. And it's like, oh, <laughs> and people were, thank goodness, a couple, because I actually was about to come. I usually say nothing on social media like that, but I was about to complain because I was like, whoa, but somebody else had beat me to it. Um, but there's an example I give in my, um, in my uh, book about this town where there, so a train went off the tracks, the train had a toxic hazardous chemical in it, that chemical spilled out. And the town wanted to warn people about, um, about the, 
the plume, you know, the toxic plume that would, that could hurt people if they went outside and um, they couldn't get access to their local news because their local news is being run by satellite from a, a town thousands of miles away um, and was just kind of running on autopilot because it was nighttime there. So yeah, local news is really important. And also teaching our students how to access news is different than it was, like you said, Tricia, different than it was even in, in our childhood and mm-hmm. our lifetime, right? Um, and I don't think, I think we can't ignore the fact that now social media is the first place we go to get news, but we need to teach students. I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, kind of the information literacy that we were talking about. We need to teach students to differentiate between you know, journalistic news sources and maybe more opinionated or non-journalistic or not fact-based news sources. Um, and we also need to kind of fight for journalism. I mean, journalism is kind of at risk right now, I think, in a way. I mean, journalism has always kind of been at risk, right? Journalism is always this really important um, occupation that does not get sufficient funding and support. But now more than ever, we need to recognize that local news, news about that forest fire or that uh, grass fire, news about that toxic spill, um, news about local politics, right? That, that, that news is really important. We need enough funding and support to be able to have that news when we need it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking how it might be such an interesting project for for schools to even partner with the the paper that is in their county, that's in their town, um, and and look and see what they can do together to reach out to them. Um, again, I, I I think as you say, there was Pew research that just came out that was talking about. Uh, you know, how TikTok is for the younger generation now becoming their primary source of news. And, you know, I I am on TikTok as of this year. We've been talking about TikTok and there is some content there that is great. But I think, as you say, sometimes just giving students the experience of what can we learn from local news and what has this local newspaper, local radio station done for our community and what ways have they raised awareness um, you know, folks who work for your local paper, your local TV station, your local radio station, maybe it's great to think about inviting them in to be a guest speaker if you've not done that before. Um, so again, I, I have to just say anybody who is teaching journalism or the IBDP language and lit program, that chapter on local media is so powerful. It gave me so much to think about. Uh, and again, I, I just kind of think as we are having these conversations about our relationship with technology, our relationship with information, and who we are growing as researchers, this book has so much value. Um, educators, I recommend it highly. Grab a copy. You can get through it really quickly, which is, I, I think, a good thing and, and t- end up taking away so much. So folks, if you're looking for a new text to add to that professional development library shelf, Data Cartels, the companies that control and monopolize our information. Um, I just have not come across another text quite like it. So congratulations on the new book. Thank you. And thanks for learning about the subject. Thank you for teaching us. I really, really appreciate it. 